What up and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast presented by Subway. I'm Joe Wolfon. I am in studio as always with co-host Joseph Casharo. What's going on? Not too much, man. Uh, we are at a point in the NBA postseason where each first round series is two games old. So this seems like as good a time as any to uh, to jump in and talk about what we've seen so far. And I mean, I want to start by kind of looking back and revisiting our predictions coming into the playoffs. And to do that, we'll get into some Sweet versus Heat, a segment brought to you by our friends at Subway, whose new Sweet versus Heat chicken sandwiches are asking people to choose which side they're on. Um, so let's talk about which side we're on, Cash. And uh, looking back to how we thought these series would play out, I'm going to ask you for two series um, where you feel like you're pretty sweet on what your predictions were coming into the playoffs and two predictions that you think you should be taking heat for two games in. So give me one of your sweet predictions first that you're feeling pretty good about. Well, the easiest one is I'm feeling pretty damn sweet about it because it's Bucks pistons and that just, that's not even a playoff series. That's the best team in the NBA right now right. playing against a team without Blake Griffin that would probably be what, like a 12 seed in the East? Like it honestly doesn't even have the feel of a playoff series. Like you watch that game on uh, Wednesday night. I mean, it doesn't help that it's on NBA TV, but even like the crowd in Milwaukee, I almost don't blame them because I guess it's hard to get that revved up when your team's coasting. And the Pistons actually were up at halftime of game two, but I at no point did I actually feel like they were a threat to win the game. Yeah. Um, we'll mean, see what happens when it gets back to Detroit and maybe Blake Griffin returns. But. Yeah, no, I feel bad just not even really talking about the Bucks. Um because they have taken care of business in obviously a really impressive way. And I mean, for the Pistons, I give them credit too for showing up and, and especially in game two, you know, playing pretty hard and, and making that at least somewhat of a game after they got their doors blown off in game one. But it's just not that interesting to talk about because like you said, you know, the disparity there is so significant and Blake Griffin's now out for the entire series. So it's not even like there's an iota of a chance that they're going to make this remotely interesting. So um, we'll revisit the Bucks, I think, next round uh, when when things get a little you, bit more challenging for them. But you think they'll get there? <laughs> I think I think they're looking okay so far. I mean, I feel bad for Dwayne Casey, who's probably about to get swept out of the playoffs for the fourth time in the last five years. This time, unlike I think some of those other sweeps, it's not really on him. I don't I don't think there's anything that he can do to change this outcome. And I probably should have excluded this from consideration for predictions that we're feeling best about because we both picked Bucks and four. Yeah, I will before say, we even knew that that Blake Griffin wasn't going to play. Right. So I will say I I agree with you that it's not on Dwayne Casey. Having said that, there's been like a couple weird lineup that like starting Thon Maker, uh, both games has gone disastrously. The right. fact that he came back with it in game two is. Um, all right, you want me to give you my second sweet team, or are you going to give me a sweet sweet series? Give me your second one. All right, the, the one I actually wanted to bring up because um, it was one that I thought would be uh, a tightly competitive one. And I don't think you were as sold on that being the case is Sixers Nets. Yeah, um, that's that's totally fair. I I picked Sixers and five, and honestly, I'm not entirely sure I'm ready to move off of that prediction yet. Um, I I definitely after that game one was sweating it, and even now, like going back to Brooklyn, I kind of do expect the Nets to take a game there. But I'm still feeling pretty confident about the Sixers in this series. But tell me why why you're feeling good about it being a competitive series, aside from 
the obvious, which is that they really embarrassed the Sixers in game one. Yeah, I had Sixers in six, I believe. Um, and I just thought, yeah, the Nets could uh, could give them a series. For one, um, you know, I said I wasn't completely sold on the fact that Joel Embiid was healthy. I don't think any of us were, really. And yeah, the Sixers won game two big. And I think Embiid did put up some decent numbers. But like, he's not playing a lot. Boban Marjanovic, who had a really good game too, played, I think, a lot more than most of us would have assumed through two games. So Embiid's not... Not looking great. Um, I don't. I think it was after game two. It was after the game they won when Embiid played all right. If anyone saw, like anything he was doing after the game, going to the scrum, or sorry, going to his podium, coming back, he was doing it on a golf cart. Like they, they were not even letting him walk to his scrum. Like that's that's what we're looking at right now with Joel right. Embiid, and we're what three days into four days into round one. So his health, uh, number one. Second of all. I, there are certain like teams and the way they're made up that I think are are made to kind of like steal a playoff game or upset a, a higher seed. And it's I don't think the Nets are the most uh, fundamentally sound roster, but they play a very fundamentally sound uh, game in the sense that they hunt the most efficient shots. They try to limit the other team to the least efficient shots. And then they've got a couple of guys like D'Angelo Russell, even Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert. They're kind of like heat check guys. And yeah, I wouldn't I don't trust them to be the top options on like a contending team for the whole year. But if they're going up against a Goliath, I do think they're the kind of players that if they get hot can steal a game or two. And I think that's exactly what we've seen so far. Right. Um, and to, to that point about Embiid, it's clear that he's not close to 100%. I would just say, as evidenced in that game too, he can still be extremely impactful and probably the most impactful player in the series, even when he is physically compromised. And for me, I think his defense has still been really, really good. Um, and the big issue in game one for the Sixers was that their perimeter defense just couldn't hold up at all. I mean, they were getting blown by at the point of attack, could not contain dribble penetration, were getting carved up in the pick and roll, specifically by uh, Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert, who, like I said, were just kind of getting into the paint at will. And Dinwiddie, I think, in particular, has done a really good job hunting mismatches getting big guys switched onto him and just dusting them off of the dribble. Um, he's been outstanding. I think, I mean, D'Angelo Russell really settled himself down in that game one because he had a tough, tough start. And the Sixers are playing this drop coverage against him that's going to open things up for him in the mid-range. But I think he was forcing some off-balance floaters, not really getting great shots. And, and his shot selection in general is not the best. But I think because the Sixers were just doing such a poor job of basically trailing him over top of that screen, so he wasn't feeling any pressure. And he had all kinds of time to settle into a rhythm. And it's really just incumbent, I think, on Philadelphia's perimeter defenders and, and the guys who are guarding on ball in the pick and roll to be able to make him feel something uh, when, when they're giving him those rear view pursuits. So I thought they did a much better job of that in game two. Their perimeter defense was much improved. I think having James Ennis there instead of Jonathan Simmons made a big difference. Ben Simmons, I thought guarding on the perimeter was way better in game two than he was in game one. Ben Simmons in general was way better in game two. He was two. the best player on the floor in game two. Yeah, and I think... So a couple things, uh, you know, Embiid did not settle for a three-pointer. He didn't take one in game two. Uh, his shot looked all kinds of off in game one. And the Nets proved, obviously, that they're going to give him that all day. They're going to give him the space to shoot that. And if the shot's not there, I mean, there are a couple things they can do. One is they can just try and pivot into some dribble handoffs. And they really, I, I credit the Nets for doing a, a good job of sort of top-locking and not allowing Redick to come and get those dribble handoffs. But... Um, I thought MB did a good job basically just not settling for those jumpers and reestablishing post position when he needed to. Ben Simmons, I thought, did a really good job pushing the ball and making sure the Sixers got out in transition. That, to me, started with their defense. Um, 
but he, you know, when obviously he gets bogged down in the half court, Jared Dudley said Ben Simmons in the half court is an average player. Honestly, that is maybe being generous to him when he's in the open floor. He's a completely different animal. And uh, he, he was getting out and running in that game too. And it made all the difference in the world. And, you know, they weren't really waiting for Embiid either, who's laboring up and down the court. They can grab and go, even if he's trailing behind and still score because, like I was saying before the series started, they just have a size advantage at pretty much every position. And I think they should be able to overwhelm Brooklyn physically. So I don't know. I mean, do, did you see anything specific in that 51 point third quarter? Again, a 51 point third quarter that busted open game two. Um, do you see anything that was like totally unsustainable? I mean, obviously, I don't expect them to put up 51 in a quarter again, but what they were doing, which was, I mean, for one thing, getting stops running off of misses, getting out in transition and semi-transition, um, working the ball inside. And I think uh, when they were on the perimeter and when guys like like Simmons and Embiid were being ignored out there, making sure that they were turning those into screening actions to get guys open. Yeah, and I don't think any of that is unsustainable. Again, it's not sustainable at that rate where right. they're going to score 200 points a game, but all those things, um, picking apart the mismatches they have, the size advantages they had, which you mentioned before, the play, like all of those things are sustainable. And not only sustainable, they're things they should be doing on a consistent basis in this series. Um, I just think, look... We've talked about how talented that five-man starting unit is. I think in that third quarter, I don't think, I think we know, that was as good as that unit has played together since the deadline when they picked up Tobias yeah. Harris. Like They legitimately looked unstoppable against a not-terrible Nets team in a playoff game. So I think if they keep hammering home on those advantages, like they're going to win the series. I still do think Brooklyn takes one more, and my Sixers and Six pick will look... All right. Although the one thing I guess I will mention is I don't know how much of a home court, like Brooklyn's uh, home court advantage isn't great in the sense of like, I don't know what their actual home record was, but in terms of their like fan support, they don't exactly have the rowdiest fan base. Right. I don't know how many Nets, like pure Nets fans there even are. Plus, there's going to be a lot of Sixers fans there because Pennsylvania and New York obviously are like Philly and New York are pretty close. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Nets home court advantage is going to be that much of a factor. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess we'll find out like how revved up that crowd is going to be because for a team that has been in the doldrums for a few years and has had this really unexpected feel-good season, uh, you'd expect the crowd to be super fired up about its first home playoff game in, I don't know what it's been, four years? Uh, Yeah, four years. 2014-15? Yeah. The only other thing I'll add about this series is I really do think Joel Embiid should have been injected from game two for, for, that elbow? for his elbow. Yeah, that was that was pretty vicious. That was like a swinging full power elbow. Yeah, props to Jared Allen for just bouncing right up off the mat after that too. Because that, I mean, that could have taken somebody's head off. Someone, again, I don't, I always forget when I, when I, when it comes to my mind, like who actually tweeted it. But someone tweeted the night it happened that, if if Joel Embiid did that to like an average sized human, their head would pop off like Dennis Hopper's in Speed. If anyone's ever seen that scene in the movie, yeah, um, I have, and <laughs> and I know exactly what you're saying. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I'm actually still feeling somewhat confident in Sixers and Five, but I, I wouldn't be particularly surprised if the Nets got one at home. And um, I, I do think, I mean, if we're looking ahead, that Embiid injury just has to be concerning because I, I don't anticipate them surviving a second-round series with him in the state that he's in right now. With him needing a golf cart to move around the area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one prediction that I'm feeling pretty sweet about is Warriors in five. And I... Look, I'll say... Look, I did not expect anything like what happened in game two of that series. But 
broadly speaking, I did expect them to have a letdown game. Um, That's exactly why you picked them in five. Exactly. Them in so, four. you know, from this point forward, I would hope or I would assume that that would serve as something of a wake-up call where they're not going to coast anymore and they're going to start to take this Clippers team seriously. To lose from 31 points up in the third quarter, I mean, that is insane to happen to any team at any point in time. But for it to happen to an all-time great team in a one-versus-eight series is at pretty, pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, I, I just for, for a team as good and, like I said, as all-time historically great as this Warriors team is, they're pretty damn combustible. And... I think there's always, you know, a push and pull and a, a complicated sense of agency when a comeback like this happens, where it's like, are you crediting the team that made the comeback or are you blaming the team that allowed that comeback to happen? And I think, as always, it's a mixture of both. I think the Warriors definitely took their foot off the gas in that game. And by the time they were ready to re-engage, the Clippers sort of just had them on the ropes a little bit. The Clippers deserve a ton of credit for coming back in that game. I mean, they were down 31, and they were still pushing the ball up the floor, like getting into the teeth of the defense, being super aggressive. And Lou Williams, I think, played maybe the single best game that I've ever well, yeah, seen. Thirty-eight him play. and eleven, thirty-six yeah. and eleven. And so I can go, I can go one of two ways with that. I mean, I'll say I'm still feeling very confident Warriors in five, um, and I'm hoping this was the one letdown game that I expected, and there won't be another one. But one area that I, that I can say I was absolutely wrong is I, I thought that Lou Williams was going to be neutralized in this series. And the reason I thought that was, you know, I, I anticipated the Warriors kind of putting Clay Thompson on him, putting Andre Iguodala on him and smothering him. For one thing, even when Clay Thompson was guarding him in that game, he was hitting some absolutely ridiculous shots and there was nothing at all that Clay could do about it. The other thing is the Clippers have done a really good job hunting mismatches with Lou, getting him switched. Like, they attacked Quinn Cook relentlessly when Quinn Cook was on the floor in that game. And when when it's been, you know, like a more traditional Warriors lineup, it's like he's looking to attack their bigs going downhill. And him and Harrell in the pick and roll have absolutely torn the Warriors apart. So I was obviously wrong about that. He's playing unbelievably well. And, you know, the Warriors are going to have to kind of go back and figure out a way to, to neutralize that pick and roll. I was so impressed by, obviously, by the Clippers' comeback, but in the way they came back. I think uh, a lot of times when you think about those kind of like outlier uh, comebacks that'll kind of never happen again, literally the biggest comeback in postseason was 31 points in the third quarter, you think of, okay, yeah, one team's taking their foot off the gas, maybe they think it's garbage time and empty their bench, and then the team that's down starts getting away from their regular offense, just starts jacking threes. Like It's usually this weird sequence of events that happens. That's, that was not the case here. The Clippers, down 31 in the third quarter against this all-time team, they literally just continued to execute their game plan. And it was kind of awesome to see that they were not rattled in the least bit. And I wrote about this too. They're down 31, and there's Patrick Beverly still defending Kevin Durant the exact same way as if it was a one-possession game in the fourth quarter, getting into him. His head's like in his hip. It, it was awesome. Down 25, there was a play where like Montrezl Harrell didn't get the ball, but like he rolled so hard to the rim. Again, you'd think this was like the guts of a crunch time moment. Lou Williams like poking and prodding the Warriors defense and doing his thing and showing those playmaking skills that he's really developed the last couple of years. Like they they just kept coming and it's it wasn't this one huge run that wasn't sustainable. They just continued to play their game and they chipped away 
and they chipped away, and before the Warriors knew it, they were in a crunch time game that they had mentally checked out of about the half hour earlier. Right. So just full credit to the Clippers, full credit to Doc Rivers, who continues to do just magical things with this roster. And as for the Warriors, look, I, I don't want to overreact to one loss. I, like, they're obviously not losing this series. They might not even lose another game in this series, and they're still rightfully so the heavy favorites to win the title but this still goes back to a lot of what we've been talking about with them this year we're just like something i don't know what it is i don't know how to put my finger on it but like something doesn't seem warriors y with this warriors team um kevin durant kind of insinuated a few weeks ago remember when some or i guess steve kerr did when he said they had to play more angry and then kevin durant came out and said well i thought like we're the warriors supposed to be playing with joy what's this i don't know it's just these like little things adding up over the course of a season where they don't seem to have that air of invincibility about them and other teams seem to sense it too right um this is why i took the field over the warriors coming into the playoffs and and you know this was just a perfect example of it this team is obviously still so loaded with talent and when they ratchet it up to their highest gear, they're obviously extremely, extremely tough to beat. But it just seems like that's happening less and less. And like I was saying, I mean, it's one thing for a team to blow a 31-point lead in the second half of a game, of a playoff game, no less. But for it to be a team as talented as the Warriors that blows that lead is like, it's got to be a little bit concerning. Even though this game probably won't matter in the grand scheme of things, it's like you were saying, another team can look at that and be like, these guys can be had. And, and, and as much as we, we credit the Clippers for making that comeback, which, again, they deserve all the credit in the world, the Warriors had some of the straight-up dumbest turnovers that I've ever seen in the second half of that game. Just so many lazy passes, inattentiveness. I mean, they, there was one play where on an inbounds play with like two seconds on the shot clock, they fouled Gallinari inexplicably. Um, Steph had some miserable turnovers like got his pocket picked at midcourt by Patrick Beverly had a terrible pass when they were playing for the last shot in the third quarter that turned into a pick six Steph also only used two of the Warriors final nine possessions mm-hmm. think about that yeah that's I mean, absurd they they've struggled a little bit when you know when guys are face guarding him to to find ways to like leverage that attention and, and, and get other guys um, open shots it's like Sometimes it looks like they just don't really know what to do when Steph's being taken out of the game. And, you know, I thought this was one of those times. He had a great start to that game, a huge first half, after he'd had an unbelievable game one. I mean, I can't stress enough how good he was in game one. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's just, it seems like a lot of the time they have struggled to match the Clippers' energy and their force. And you talked about Harrell. I mean, Harrell rolling to the basket has just been an absolute steamroller in this series. And it's not just that he's rolling hard and that he's extremely physical and extremely strong. He's really honed his touch. Like his finishing on the roll has been excellent. And it's, you know, sometimes it's like he's just grabbing the ball and dunking it, but sometimes he's got to go to that little push shot. Uh, He's finishing through contact from weird angles and, and he's putting everything in the basket. It's pretty impressive. This, the second half was just unbelievable to watch. It's for a team that good to blow a lead that big at home in a playoff game was unbelievable. And, Like I said, I wrote about it uh, Tuesday morning, I guess, and, you know, not to get too poetic, but the way I saw it was like, look, yeah, the Clippers, they're not going to be there in the end, but, you know, this show is called Pound the Rock, and it's based off a motto that Dwayne Casey brought to Toronto, but Greg Popovich originally instilled in San Antonio, and it's based on the Stonecutter's Credo, which is that, you know, a stonecutter will... 
pound a piece of stone a hundred times and you won't see any damage. And then when it cracks on the hundred and first time, it wasn't that hundred and first blow that did it. It was all those blows before it. And and that's kind of the way I saw this game in that like the Clippers aren't going to beat the Warriors, but if someone does down the line, there are these little things throughout the course of the season. And this collapse was one of them that we will look at and be like, okay, there was a crack right. there. You know what I mean? There was something that led to the crack. There was something. And then it, it they, finally they loosened the lid of that it, pickle jar just oh, enough for somebody great. else to unscrew yeah, it. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one thing we should talk about too is obviously uh, DeMarcus Cousins goes down with uh, what looks like a torn quad muscle. Um, Steve Kerr kind of left the door a little bit open for him to return in the playoffs. I, I don't, think that that's going to happen and I think the interesting thing about this is like the the Warriors didn't necessarily need him and I think he's actually he's been a bit of a detriment at times like in that game one Kevon Looney I thought was way better than him and and Looney is not as good a player as DeMarcus Cousins he makes way more sense I think with this Warriors team given his skill set so I don't think this is a situation where it's like it's really going to hurt the Warriors that much. I do think it would have been awfully nice for them to have that ace up their sleeves. And, you know, we're looking ahead to a potential Warriors-Rockets second round. I mean, he had a monster game against the Rockets in the regular season where he showed kind of how he could tilt the balance of that matchup because if the Rockets sort of want to switch every on-ball screening action, it's like, there's Cousins with the ability to turn those into post-ups where he's just mashing like Aaron Gordon in the post. And as as just sort of like a like a matchup buster, I thought he presented some really interesting options. The other thing is just for Cousins himself, this just sucks. I mean, yeah. there's there's no other way to slice it. Like he's playing in his first playoff games ever. I mean, this was his second ever playoff game after his first one went pretty disastrously. And now he's just like not even really going to get a chance to contribute or or write a playoff legacy for himself. And now he's going into free agency, having had uh, a ruptured Achilles and now a pretty serious quad injury. I mean, it's going to torpedo his market. And honestly, if anything, it might signal that he he's going to end up back with the Warriors again next season because. Uh, they obviously weren't going to be able to afford him if he was going to hit the open market healthy, uh, you know, after a potentially solid playoff run. But at this point in time, I mean, it might not take anything more than like the taxpayers mid-level to sign him. Yeah, I I do think this will actually keep him in the Bay Area. Um, The way his value went from like surefire max to a one-year deal like in the in the last couple of years the way that's happened is he's, he's kind of like the big man's equivalent of isaiah thomas obviously not the boogie's injuries more severe really like when you look at them but mm-hmm. very similar in terms of the way their careers ended up playing out when they could have been max free agents but for me the like the boogie injury from the warriors perspective it is big um aside from the narrative of the fact that they were calling this like the, you know the boogie season because we should say he, he doesn't want to be called boogie anymore. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, <laughs> I know it's a tough, but the warrior, the warriors but. were calling it the boogie season. Literally. Like they were yeah. saying that this was a season for boogie and, um, you know, like the joy they were going to find and the motivation they were going to find after all these years of getting to the finals was winning one for DeMarcus cousins and get you know, helping him shed the label of his past. So that aside from a basketball perspective, I do think this is a big deal. I agree with everyone who's brought up the fact that uh, Kevon Looney makes more sense for them, especially defensively, and like fits in general what they want to do better. But the thing is, 
when the Warriors um, want to be at their best, neither one of Kevon Looney or DeMarcus Cousins fits in anyway yeah. because they go with the the death lineup, right? The Hamptons five. So really what you're looking at is like who then gives them a different look? Who gives them something else? And the whole reason they brought DeMarcus Cousins in was to essentially eliminate the one weakness and the one area opponents could exploit. And that was like, okay, if we go big on them, maybe we can crash the glass. Maybe we can punish them inside. You bring DeMarcus Cousins in, that's not so much of a factor anymore because like the the game game two against the Clippers is a perfect example. You don't think if they had DeMarcus Cousins in the post, you know, even if it was six minutes, they could have dumped it in there for two, three buckets that could have staved off a rally at some points. Like there's just like, I don't know. I DeMarcus Cousins could... Um, was a bit of a slump buster in situations like that. He could punish teams that thought they could go big against the Warriors, and they just don't have that anymore. And yeah, they're still going to be at their best with the Hamptons 5, and Looney will give them good minutes that make more sense than Cousins defensively. But I really do think that from a basketball perspective, it is you know kind of a bigger deal than people are letting on. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I, I think the, the, Rock, the point about the Rockets is, like we've mentioned it before, and it's you know, the, the Warriors' lack of a viable post-up threat was the reason that the Rockets could sort of get away with switching everything. Um, I, I just, he looks so vulnerable defensively that I don't know how much of a value add there was ultimately going to be. I think if you're looking at, you know, now their sort of backup center option, uh, if you want to call it that, because there is a limit to how many minutes they can play with Draymond Green at the five. You know, he can't do it for a full game. And... Looney's probably going to give you about 20 minutes a game. Maybe they go like 15 minutes a game with Green at the five. That's still leaving like 12 minutes there. And now you're looking at basically Andrew Bogut. So who wasn't even the league a month ago. Yeah. Um, And to his credit, I mean, he's looked all right, but I I don't know how confident they should feel about him being their backup center. I mean, maybe Looney's up for playing like 25, 30 minutes a game. That very well could be the case. He's looked really good. And like we said, he's he's a lot more mobile than Cousins. And they don't need him to do a, a whole lot offensively, aside from just like set really solid screens, roll hard to the rim, and dunk any lob that comes his way. And, um, you know, defensively, he, he moves around well. He can protect the rim. Um, he can switch a little bit. So I think ultimately, I mean, the question that I have about that is, like, were they going to get to a place where they were playing Cousins like 12 minutes a game? Were they going to get to a place where they were bringing him off the bench? Or were they going to keep starting him and playing him like 20 to 25 minutes? Because I, I think if they if they weren't willing to make that move, then ultimately I, he was taking more things off the table than he was providing. Just because the stuff that he provides offensively isn't all that useful on a Warriors team that is already so rife with scoring and playmaking ability. So again, it, it sucks for Cousins. Uh, you know, no two ways about that. But for the Warriors themselves, I don't think it changes their outlook all that much. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Let's move on to some of our predictions that we ought to be taking heat for. Uh, So Cash, I will start with you. Um, What's one that you wish you could take back? 
Um, so we have the same two here, so I'll take one. I guess you can take the other one. Um, so I'll go first and say Thunder and Six. I think we both had this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I really like this Portland team. I was high on them all year. When the Nurkic injury happened, I literally wrote a feature that was about the fact that their season was over and it was like a great run, but you're not winning a round. Um, thought the Thunder were a terrible matchup for them, evidenced by the 4 nothing season series sweep. And the Blazers have, you know, kind of throttled them. Um, Damian Lillard has eaten Russell Westbrook alive. It's been kind of, it, not kind of, it's been awesome to watch. Not because I'm anti-Westbrook, but just because it's been cool to watch Dame shed these playoff demons that everyone had haunting him. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely expected him to be a lot better than he was last postseason just because he himself is better, and I feel like he's learned some valuable lessons. And I, I mean, a lot of this falls on the thunder. I just I, I don't think that they have done a particularly good job of defending him. Westbrook takes a lot of blame there. Uh, you know, one thing for Westbrook, and it's really simple, is just like when Damian Lillard is dribbling the ball up the court, even if he's 35 feet away from the hoop, you've got to press up on him. Like, And there are so many times where Westbrook is just relaxing. He's got his hands on his knees and Lillard just casually pulls up from like 30 feet. Like that is his range. You can't just assume that like giving him that shot is going to be a win for the defense. Frankly, it's not. Yeah, it's not, not you even, shooting it, Russ. Like if you're not even getting a hand up on that, I mean... I don't know how many shots Lillard has hit from 30-plus feet out in this series, but it's more than four, <laughs> you know? Like he's hit nine threes already in this series. The Thunder is a team of hit 10, and I think that right there sort of tells you what has gone on in this matchup. The, the reason that the Blazers have basically gotten away with playing defensively limited centers like Ennis Cantor and Myers Leonard is that the Thunder just do not have the shooting to punish them for it. And even if they can put those guys in pick and roll and make them defend in space, the Blazers' wings can just crash in from the weak side and dare these Thunder shooters to beat them. And the contributions that they were getting from guys like Jeremy Grant and Terrence Ferguson in the regular season haven't really been there. Paul George has shot the ball okay. It's like every time he shoots it, he's flexing out his shoulder, doesn't look entirely comfortable defensively. He's still obviously been really good when it comes to just like getting into the ball handler, moving his feet really well. But I think he hasn't been as good contesting shots. Like I think you can really see the impact that that injury is having on him. That's obviously disastrous. And if he's not shooting the ball well, the Thunder have nothing. They have no perimeter shooting. And I think the you know what that has resulted in is basically all these games are being played played on the Blazers' terms. You know, they first of all, the g- game one is like the Cantor game. He, he has 20 points and 18 rebounds. And you know he is capable of doing stuff like that. His rebounding in that game was huge. And, and against the Thunder, you know, keeping Steven Adams off the offensive glass is always going to be really important. But you assume that the Thunder are going to force him to give that back at the defensive end, and they just didn't. And, and one of the reasons for that was a lot of the time they just posted him up rather than putting, putting him in pick and roll, which I don't fully understand. Um, because that's sort of playing to his strengths. Like he can he can guard the post reasonably well, and you're not really making him defend in space or have to move his feet. Um, but again, like when they did put him in pick and roll, like they had a lot of success, they scored on him. But the Blazers were able to muck that up by just collapsing the paint, and the Thunder haven't been able to make them pay. There, I think they're ten of sixty-two from three in this series. I, I expect them to shoot better at home, and I could very much see this series going back to Portland tied two-two. But as far as my Thunder and Six prediction, man, I'm not feeling particularly good about that right now. And 
One thing we should mention, too, is McCollum has been great. And coming into the series, I was worried about that because he had that knee injury and he hadn't looked very good in the last two regular season games that he played. But, wow, man, he, he has been awesome. And, um, you know, the Thunder, I don't know if they have to rethink their defensive strategy, but, like, they're pressuring the ball. I, I just don't know if they're putting enough pressure on the ball to actually, like, make that scheme stick. Because when Lillard has been... Uh, blitzed or trapped, like he's just able to make passes out of those traps without much issue. They're not turning him over a whole lot. And having him and McCollum on the floor at the same time, like you have another ball handler out there and you can sort of just pivot into like another pick and roll or give the ball to CJ and let him make something happen. Uh, when the Thunder have switched, McCollum has been able to make them pay for that. His floater game has been absolute money. If those two guys are rolling, the Blazers can absolutely win this series. Yeah. And you mentioned it too, like the, the Thunder just don't have the shooting to punish uh, a defensively incapable big like an Escandra because, okay, yeah, obviously guarding the pick and roll, you're not just guarding the ball handler as like a shooter, but when the ball handler is not a shooter, it makes it a lot easier. You're not necessarily as pressed for time to get up there and then have to recover back. Like you can hang back a little bit. You're not really that worried about Russell Westbrook um, stepping in, even stepping inside the arc and like letting a mid-range right. jumper go. If Paul George's shoulder isn't right, I don't know how worried you are about him either. No one else on that team can really score. Based on what we've seen in the first two games, I don't see any ways for the Thunder to take advantage of what could have been advantages for them. Right. And I think a perfect example of this was the Myers-Leonard's minutes in game two, where it's like at one end of the floor, um, Steven Adams is going out and trapping Lillard in the pick and pop. Lillard slips an easy pocket pass to Myers-Leonard, who hits a three. The next time down the floor, like they run the same action with McCollum running it. And the Thunder decide instead of trapping, you know, they want to take away that three, so they switch. And then McCollum just cooks Steven Adams on a switch. And at the other end, it's like, okay, you have Myers Leonard there, you know, like you should be able to exploit this in some way, whether it's Steven Adams beasting him in the post, whether it's putting him in pick and roll, and they're just not able to do it. And the Blazers handily win the Myers Leonard's minute minutes. And that's what I mean when I say that the games are being played on Portland's terms. It's like they are able to throw like matchup wrinkles out there that the Thunder haven't yet been able to counter. And so I'm interested to see what adjustments they make and whether it's just a question of them shooting the ball better going back to OKC because that alone could really turn the tide of this series. But for now, it's been all Blazers and you mentioned it. I mean, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum just like shedding that playoff baggage that's dogged them for so long. Um, it's really nice to see, especially for this team that has had such bad luck losing Nurkic right before the playoffs. Uh, for them to be showing out like this is Really nice. Yeah, again, I, I think I mentioned it last week, but if I didn't, um, when I did this this post looking at like the statistical profiles of modern champions, the Blazers literally checked every box except for specific defensive numbers, and they checked those defensive numbers when Nurkic was on the court. Mm -hmm. So like the Blazers were this kind of like hiding in plain sight, sneaky good contender if they came in healthy. So if they can win a round, you know, even though they're not a true contender anymore, it would still be awesome to see. No doubt. Um, all right, so let's move on to uh, to the second pick that we ought to be taking heat for, um, which is we both picked Rockets in six, expected this to be a, a hotly contested series, and it might yet be. It's going back to Utah, but so far it has been all Rockets, and I haven't seen a ton to suggest that that's going to change. Uh, you wrote about this this morning, Cash. So what have you seen in that series so far uh, that, that 
tells you that this is going to be rockets all the way. Yeah, so I, I did write about this this morning. It was basically, I provided three reasons why this series hasn't been as competitive as we assumed it would be. And the number one reason is because of the way, or rather the lack of the way the Jazz are guarding James Harden. Um, you might have seen it mocked on social media at this point because it, it's been a, the butt end of a joke for the last few nights. But the Jazz trying to guard Harden the Milwaukee way, quote unquote, the Bucks had success guarding Harden this year by playing his left shoulder, forcing the left-handed star to his right, um, you know, forcing him into like tough floaters over the Bucks' length. And and the Bucks are also good enough and quick enough that they can collapse the paint and recover back to shooters quick enough. The Jazz are not. The Jazz have very good individual defenders. Rudy Gobert is a good rim protector. Rudy Gobert is not as good when he has to stray far from the rim. And the Jazz good individual defenders aren't as quick as the Bucks' best defenders. So they're not hitting the paint and then recovering the shooters. Not to mention, it's one thing to say you're going to force a guy right. Allowing a guy a red carpet welcome into the paint isn't forcing him right. That's just letting him get to his spot easy. And so what you've got now is a situation where, sure, Ricky Rubio, Joe Ingles, whoever it is, is taking away Harden's left shoulder and they're forcing him right. But he's literally just got this clear path to the rim. Rudy Gobert has to step up where he's not comfortable and James Harden's either hitting a floater over him, attempting a floater over him or finding an open shooter because then the Jazz, who are supposed to be this elite sound defensive team are doing like the the biggest no-no. They're committing the biggest error in defense, which is helping one pass away, which means they're sending a, a double team from a shooter who is one pass away from the ball handler, in this case, Harden. So they're giving up the easiest look and the easiest pass for a transcendent passer. It just makes no sense. Harden's finding those shooters easily. It It's honestly been stunning to see. Like, it's one thing to Harden cooks you, that's fine. He is who he is. But how un, like disorganized the Jazz defense has been has just been... It, it doesn't make any sense. And another thing I'll mention, and I mentioned this in our series preview, forcing James Harden into floaters used to be a good recipe for success. The Spurs did it to great success a couple of years ago in the playoffs. The Jazz didn't necessarily succeed with it last year, but it looked all right when they did it in the playoffs. James Harden is now very comfortable picking you apart with his floater. He's probably mastered it because of the experience against San Antonio and Utah in the past. But James Harden took more floaters in the regular season this year than he did between the regular season and two and three playoff rounds last year. And he did it a lot more efficiently. Like he can do that now. I just don't see, unless the Jazz completely revamp their defense, which is something we've never seen before in game three. I don't understand how this scheme is going to stop James Harden. Well, I, they in game two, they did adjust that scheme like midway through the game. They started playing him more straight up and they weren't as aggressively sitting on his left shoulder. And I think we will see them start to employ a little bit of different tactic uh, going home because that obviously wasn't working for them. And like you said, there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is they just don't have the same personnel. And I think if anything, they should give us a renewed appreciation for Eric Bledsoe who I think we can all agree had a, had a wonderful defensive regular season. I put him on my all-defensive first team. Uh, but this this really bears it out, I think. And and Rubio, who has been the on-ball defender on Harden for a lot of these possessions, just is not as good a trail defender as Bledsoe is. And it's exactly what you were saying. Like You actually have to force him to his right hand for that to be effective. And if you're just allowing him to get middle, he can get back to that left hand pretty easily. Another thing is... I think the effectiveness of, of that scheme was a little bit overstated because when the Bucks played it, specifically in that March game, 
PJ Tucker was just clanking all his threes, and Tucker has been absolute money from the corners in this series, so that makes a huge difference. But the other thing is, if you're going to make that scheme work, you have to trust the big guy to be able to contain Harden and the big and the dunker spot at the same time. And that's what the Bucks have done a really good job of with Brooke Lopez, is it's like, okay, you're going to stand right under the rim, and you're going to basically stay in contact with the big man under the basket, and you're also going to challenge Harden and make him shoot that floater. And the Jazz haven't trusted Gobert to do that, which is weird because he is Rudy Gobert. He is probably going to be the defense player of the year. And the thing that he might be best at of all his incredible defensive attributes is his ability to corral two players at once. And because they are allowing him to just like waltz into the paint, Capella is not coming up to screen. And I think it's a little bit different when you are guarding a roll man and the ball handler, as opposed to guarding a guy who is making his cut along the baseline. And so because Capella is sort of lurking there and and making his cut from the corner rather than from the top of the key, the Jazz defenders are, I think, overreacting to that. And they're rotating down onto him. And that's just creating a ton of open three-pointers because Harden is finding those kickouts. So I, I think... I think it's probably a good thing that they've abandoned that scheme even though coming into the series i was like oh man they have the personnel to make this work it clearly wasn't working for them gobert i think was not really used to having to play that far back and as a result was coming up too high to make that work and that's i think one of the reasons that the to the jazz wings were having to rotate down because gobert wasn't in the right spot so a ton of reasons that, that scheme didn't work um but even if they do adapt defensively like are they going to be able to score enough well, to this, make this a series? This is the other thing. Like you mentioned PJ Tucker shooting well in this series so far. This is another one of the three reasons I had why this series hasn't been competitive is the three-point discrepancy. So the Rockets aren't exactly like shooting the leather off the ball. They're at like 38%, which is good above their season average, but not unsustainable by any stretch. The Jazz, on the other hand, are underperforming their shooting expectancy by such a wide margin. It's crazy. Joe Ingles, elite shooter, two of nine in the series. Donovan Mitchell, uh, Above average shooter this year, 36%, 4 of 15. Jay Crowder, who actually had a not great shooting season at 33%, but still, like, 1 out of 3 ain't bad, 2 of 13. So you're looking at three guys who combined to shoot 36% from deep on, I believe, over 1,000 attempts this season, shooting a combined 7 of 30 from deep in this series, while the Rockets overperform uh, on the other end shooting the ball. Like, that, when you're already the inferior team, on the road, no less, like the underdogs in the playoff series, you need the opposite to happen. You need the outlier to go your way for you to steal the series. And if it's going to go this way, they've just got no chance. Another thing too that, you know, I found when I was writing my post is, and maybe it's something we should have seen digging into the series, but um, the tail of the turnovers actually should have presented some concerns for Utah. So Utah was 27th in terms of the, uh, the rate at which they turned the ball over. Houston was seventh in forcing turnover rate. And they were also third in transition efficiency. So those are obviously not great indicators for the Jazz in this series. And then if you look at it, they did clean it up in the second half of game two. But game one, uh, 19 turnovers for 26 Rockets points. Game two, they turned the ball over four times in the first three minutes and 40 seconds. And it led to 10 Houston points. Mm-hmm. And the the Rockets were up 12-4 at the time. And look, obviously, you know, we just talked about a 31-point comeback. Eight Down eight points, four minutes into the game isn't big. But again, when you're the inferior team, when the margin for error is slim, and you're just handing a team 10 points off your turnovers three, three and a half minutes into the game, like these things add up. Yeah, all signs kind of pointing in the wrong direction for Utah. And I will say I do expect them to win at least a game at home, but it's just... 
And I said this even, you know, before the playoffs started when I made this Rockets and Six pick. I was like, I can see the Jazz making it a series, but I just can't see them winning. And so even if they do somehow manage to level up this series with two games in Utah, I ju- they just don't have enough firepower. And, um, you know, their their defense, which is so effective against like 28 teams in the league, is not as effective against Houston. Houston just has so many ways to exploit it. They can spread Utah out. And even if, you know, they adapt their coverages to to take away what Harden's doing, I mean, I don't think they could have done anything to take away what he was doing in, in that game last night. He was so utterly ridiculous. Um, but like the Rockets have the option to downsize and go P.J. Tucker at the five. And, and you're still pulling Gobert away from the rim. And Gobert's not really a post-up threat who can hurt them for it at the other end. Like, th- there are so many more advantages that Houston can press against Utah than vice versa. And that's why I see this. I see this going to Rockets in five, honestly, yeah, which is agreed. why I'm saying uh, I don't feel great about my, my Rockets in six pick. Um, but the one, one last series that I, I do feel sweet about is Nuggets in seven. Um, which I wasn't feeling great about midway through the third quarter of that game too. And the Spurs had a 19 point lead and that was really the Nuggets season on the line right there because they go back to San Antonio down two nothing against a team that's lost nine games at home all year. That series is essentially over, but they managed to claw their way back and it starts, you know, with a run, uh, sparked by Malik Beasley and Monty Morris and finished off by Jamal Murray, who was having just an abysmal game. Like a historically them. bad game. And and completely turns it around into one of the greatest playoff fourth quarter performance that I've ever seen. Unbelievable shot making down the stretch. Makes two monstrous pull-up three-pointers in the last three minutes to help seal that Nuggets victory. And now they're going to San Antonio, tied one all. I think they're going to be able to take a game there. And I kind of see this you know, you said before the series you thought it was going to be like a homer series, where it was just chalk. Home team wins every single game. I think we might see that from from here on out after uh, after the Jazz get one in San Antonio, where it ends up going seven and the Nuggets win it there. Um, but I do see the series going the distance because I think these teams are pretty well matched, and I expect the Nuggets to pull it out. Yeah, like I think. I, I don't want to change my prediction. I'm still going to go Nuggets in seven, I guess. But I don't feel as confident about it as you do. Um, I think the Spurs stealing game one, even though you know they did blow a huge leading game two, and it seems like now the Nuggets are riding all this momentum into San Antonio. I still do think home court really does matter in this series more than any other. And the Spurs were fantastic at home this year. Uh, the Nuggets finished, I think, one game under 500 on the road. Like... I, I'll still believe it when I see it in terms of the Nuggets winning a playoff game in San Antonio. And they, if they can do it, if they can get a split in Span- San Antonio, then yeah, I'm still going Nuggets in seven. But I really do need to see it to believe it because right now I might lean to this series coming back to Denver 3-1 San Antonio. The reason that I feel confident in Denver, I think, is even when they were getting beat, the biggest reason I thought for it was that they were just missing shots. And... I think ultimately they're a pretty good shooting team, and I don't really expect that to continue. And the Spurs, frankly, got bailed out a lot of the time. They were sending aggressive double teams at Jokic, and Jokic was doing what he was supposed to do, which is finding shooters uh, out of those double teams. And the Nuggets just weren't able to make San Antonio pay. Uh, They're just missing shots that they normally make. And I kind of expect this game, getting that win, coming back from that huge deficit when it looked like they were dead in the water, is going to allow them to relax a little bit. It felt like they were playing pretty tight and had the yips that you might expect from a team that is made up of players who were, you know, a lot of them making their playoff debuts. I think that's just going to settle them down a bit 
and then from here on out they're gonna they're gonna make their shots at a rate that we would expect from that team um so that that's why I feel more confident about them and I think Jokic has been quite good in this series I think Paul Millsap has been excellent I, I feel like he's pretty thoroughly outplayed Aldridge actually defensively he's been outstanding just like there are possessions where he's guarding like three four players um and it like he does such a good job like he'll he'll close out and force a drive he'll manage to crack back and and help on that drive to force a kick out and then he is challenging the shooter off of that kick out like he he's been everywhere and when he's guarding aldridge one-on-one in the post aldridge hasn't gotten much like that's not really where the bulk of the spurs offense has come from so uh, that's a matchup that uh, I think, I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe Aldridge turns that around. Like, he is definitely capable of winning that matchup. But so far, I think it, it is advantage Millsap. And going the other way, I mean, I, I wrote about this after game two. Man, Jakob Pertl's done quite a nice job on Jokic. And because I don't think the Spurs want to go to uh, Pertl-Aldridge lineup when the Nuggets aren't doing the same thing with Plumlee and Jokic... That puts a bit of a, a sort of tight leash on Pirtle's minutes. But if it's like a close game down the stretch and Jokic is carving them up, I wonder if we won't see them go to Pirtle, whether it's alongside Aldridge or in place of Aldridge, if they don't feel like they can get away with playing those two bigs at the same time. I mean, it, it might make sense. I don't think LaMarcus Aldridge would take to it very kindly. Mm-hmm. Um, not that he's at all anything like a team cancer or anything, but yeah, I don't think LaMarcus Aldridge is going to... LaMarcus Aldridge, who two years ago wanted to be traded because his role in San Antonio wasn't what he signed up for. I don't know how well he's going to uh, accept watching crunch time from the bench or watching you know major minutes from the bench in a playoff series. Yeah, well... I don't know. I mean, maybe the Spurs just, like, Popovich does like playing big. Uh, so maybe they will just play heavier minutes with that Pirtle aldridge lineup. I just think that does cripple them offensively. Defensively, they can definitely survive in that configuration. Um, but, yeah, offensively, I mean, that just makes things so much easier, I think, for Jokic when there are two bigs out there. And, I mean, the Spurs in general are, are a nice matchup for Jokic. And I said this before the series because they don't shoot threes and they don't take shots at the rim. And those are the two areas where Jokic struggles the most. Like he's pretty comfortable guarding in the mid range, which is where the majority of, of San Antonio's offense comes from. So that's, that's why I'm still feeling pretty confident about Denver moving forward. And uh, yeah, I expect it to, to hold true to my prediction, which is nuggets and seven. Yeah. Uh, let's hope so. Uh, not that I'm against San Antonio, but I just, let's be right. Uh, <laughs> we, we've hit six of the eight series. You want to, Quickly yeah. hit on the other two. Yeah, so so the two we haven't talked about. Let's start with Pacers Celtics just because they played last night. Um, the story of the series, just as we expected it to be, is that the Pacers cannot score on the Celtics, and the Pacers go through some of the absolute ugliest droughts that I've ever seen. They had another one in Game Two after you know it was a third quarter in Game One where they scored eight points and shot two of nineteen. Last night, it was the fourth quarter where they scored 12 points. They shot four of 17. They did not hit a single two-point shot. And they had three points through the first eight and a half minutes of that quarter. And they were up by 11 going into the fourth. And ultimately, I mean, this is why I was saying before the series, like if I had, if if the Pacers had a healthy Oladipo, I would have picked them to win. Because they can really defend the Celtics. And what it comes down to is when things tighten up, the Celtics have an elite creator and scorer, and the Pacers don't. And 
what the Pacers really rely on to get their offense is if they can't beat you up inside, which they can't do against the Celtics because Horford and Baines are both so solid. If they can't do that, then what they really need to do is just sort of confuse you with a ton of cuts and off-ball screening actions. And the Celtics defense does not confuse easily. They're really good at switching and communicating. You know, they have Horford there on the back line who's just done, I think, a fantastic job basically directing traffic and protecting the rim. So the Pacers haven't really gotten very good shots. And down the stretch of this game, they could not get anything against the Celtics defense. And it's it's sort of similar to what I was saying about the Jazz Rockets series, where I could actually see the Pacers going home and, and winning a game and maybe even tying this up. But I don't ever feel like they're going to win the series. You know, even if they manage to make it competitive on the scoreboard, it's like this last game was sort of a microcosm of that it's like yeah they're putting scoreboard pressure on you they're playing hard I just don't think like when it comes down to it when things are tight that they're going to be able to get across the finish line yeah I agree with that it's you know it's exactly what we assumed um they just don't have enough offensive talent to to win in the playoffs let alone against a really good defensive team like the Celtics but I will say that the Celtics despite being up two nothing I I think they might be actually the least impressive of the East top four teams. So I know the Raptors and Sixers both dropped a game, but if you're just looking at like their ceilings and like the best we've seen of them through these two games, I still think the Celtics are the least impressive. I mean, I know Jason Tatum ended up having a really nice bounce back game in game two, but when I'm watching that, for the most part, most of these first two games, what I'm seeing from the Celtics is a team that's, yes, definitely better than an Oladipo as Pacers team, but I don't know if the Celtics have enough offensive talent at this point to beat the Bucs, the Raptors, or even the Sixers. That's the way I'm seeing it. Kyrie Irving, sure, transcendent offensive player, legitimate closer in a in a playoff environment. We've seen that in the finals in the Game 7. And we should say, he, his shot making in Game 2 was preposterous. Unbelievable. And I'm all in on Kyrie as a playoff performer, no doubt. But I, it, we've seen it throughout the year in a very large sample size, a whole year's worth. And I think we're seeing it for most of the first two games of this series, though, that like after Kyrie Irving, I don't think... You know, Jason Tatum definitely didn't take the leap people thought he would take this year. And after that, like their secondary talent, I just don't think, at least on the offensive end, is as good as people thought it would be. And I, do, I really don't think they have enough to hang with the the other top teams in the East. I mean, I sort of agree. At the same time, I think we should give credit to the Pacers defense, sure. which has done a really good job. Um, and, you know, I was talking about how, how good I thought Horford was in, in game two. Miles Turner was outstanding. Um you know, whether it was just providing help at the rim or even switching out on the perimeter. I thought he did a fantastic job. He and had a few of those blocks I love too, where he smacks it off the backboard so hard that it actually sparks a fast break the other way. Yeah. Um, and I think he's as good at that as anybody is like blocking shots, but keeping yeah. the ball alive. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I like Corey Joseph again, like the, the Celtics had to work pretty hard to get, you know, when he's guarding Kyrie to get Kojo switched off of him. Um, Wesley Matthews, I think has done a pretty good job on Kyrie. And again, like Kyrie's shot making was the difference. Like, I, I don't think the Pacers did anything wrong on him. He just made some ridiculous shots. Um, so I actually think the Celtics offense is better than the Pacers have managed to make it look. I also think you could say that their defense isn't quite as good as the Pacers have make it have made it look. So I don't know. I, I just find it really hard to judge because this Pacers team will give you all you can handle. And I think for the most part, the Celtics have handled it pretty well. They're probably going to play the Bucks in the second round. And I think, you know, if I had to pick now, I'd go Bucks all the way. But I wouldn't say that the Celtics have been unimpressive. I'll say that. I think they've actually played pretty well. Um, I just... 
I, I just think the Pacers deserve credit for for how they've been able to defend. Uh, okay, so let's go to the to the last series here, uh, which is Raptors Magic, and Orlando manages to pull out Game One and extend the Raptors' decades long Game One woes, but the Raptors come back and emphatically win game two to level that series at one apiece. And the big storyline in this series to me, and you and I both wrote about it in some detail after game two, is what the Raptors have managed to do to Nikola Vucevic, who coming into the series, you know, we both said he's by far Orlando's best player. This guy was a first-time All-Star this year. I said he, I thought he had a fringe case for All-NBA third team. He'd had some monstrous games against the Raptors in the regular season, and he's been invisible. He was averaging eight and a half points, three assists, two and a half turnovers, and shooting 28% from the field through two games. So let's talk about how the Raps have managed to take him out of this series and maybe what Orlando can do about it moving forward. So for one, Marcus Gasol has had just an incredibly good uh, start to this series on the defensive end. Him and Kawhi Leonard miscommunicated on the one play everyone will remember from game one when DJ Augustin hit the three-pointer over them. But literally other than that one play, Marcus Gasol has been in the right spot. His hands have been in the right passing lanes just at every turn in this series. And he's done such a good job pushing Vucevic out of his sweet spots. Vuce is catching the ball in areas further from the rim than he usually does. The Raptors are doing a really good job bringing a very quick double to Vucevic. And obviously the Magic don't exactly have a plethora of shooters around them. So it's not as easy as just saying, hey, throw it out to a shooter when you get doubled. Having said that, I will say it's been somewhat unsettling for a guy that, you know, I agree with everything you said. He's a legit all-star this year, borderline all-NBA, fantastic offensive player. This is not the first time he's been double-teamed in his career. Far from it. He got double-teamed pretty much all year. It's been somewhat unsettling for me to see how uncomfortable he's looked with these doubles. Like, he he looks like a guy who has never been double-teamed before. Right. Um, And I think... I mean, it's a, it's a little bit like what we were saying uh, with the Thunder against the Blazers in that when you just don't have a lot of shooting around him, like the Raptors are free and, and like, you know, the Magic need Jonathan Isaac to be out on the floor to counter Pascal Siakam, but Isaac has crippled Orlando's offense when he's been out there. So what do you do about that? I mean, obviously you would love to be able to play Vucevic alongside all the Magic shooters, you know, Fournier, Augustine, Terrence Ross, that might be it, um, but but there and you see the problem, right? Like you, a lineup like that isn't going to be able to defend, and the Magic have thrived on their defense this year. So, I mean, one thing I would say, I don't think they've used him in pick and pop enough. Uh, I think that can be a pretty effective deterrent. Like the post ups obviously aren't working, but with some of those pick and pops, it's like if if he's hitting those threes. Like the Raptors can't play a drop coverage against that because Gasol is going to be too far away to challenge his shot. They can't really play a blitz coverage, which I thought that was an interesting wrinkle from the Raptors. They got burned by DJ Augustine in game one. They come out in game two with an impetus to put a ton of ball pressure uh, on Augustine when he's coming off of those pick and rolls. Marcus Hall is playing way, way higher up. If Augustine's able to make that pocket pass, then, you know, Vooch is going to have a four on three available to him. But again, it's like the Raptors help side defenders are ready to crash. And it's like, okay, we'll challenge you to make one of these shooters beat us. If it's Carter Williams, if it's... Aaron Gordon, if it's Isaac, if it's Owundu, like, let one of these guys beat us from outside. And the Magic haven't been able to do it. And I think the Raptors, who, you know, we talked about the Magic trying to make this a half-court series, and the Magic being a low-turnover team, they turned the ball over a ton in that game. And I think the amped-up ball pressure from Toronto really made that work. So, 
you've got, you know, like they've done a good job pressuring the ball. They've done a great job scrambling behind that ball pressure and rotating out um, and also leaving the right guys open and, and daring the Magic to beat them from long range, which they haven't been able to do. If they're running that pick and pop, that makes it a little bit more difficult because I think the, probably the best way to counter that action is to switch it. And I mean, I guess you, you can maybe like hedge and recover stuff like that, but that can be difficult to do. But if you're switching it, then that's an opportunity for Vucevic to maybe pivot and turn those into post-ups against little guys. And yeah, the Raptors are going to bring help and they're going to bring double teams. He's got to be ready for those. He's got to be ready to make quick kickout passes when the double comes, anticipate it and make the Raptors think twice about doubling. And again, I think they should maximize the time that he's playing with, with like Fournier and Terrence Ross out there because the times when he's been playing with the Magic's non-shooters the Raptors have been able to just totally suffocate their offense. Yeah, and I know, look, credit the Magic for stealing one game in Toronto. That's very hard for, well, I guess it's not that hard when you consider Raptors history, but it should be hard considering the talent discrepancy between these teams and how good Toronto is at home. And because of that, I might even, instead of saying Raps in five, now think Raps in six is more likely, which I think you had originally. But I did, yeah. I will say the reason I had Raps in five is for a lot of the reasons we've seen through these first two games. Um, if Orlando, Orlando was playing a team that wasn't as good defensively I think they could create a lot more problems for them but the the problem for the Magic is that yeah they're an elite defensive team at their best but so are the Raptors and so they're gonna maybe cut in a little bit to what the Raptors do on the offensive end but on the other end Orlando's already a team that just doesn't have a lot of offensive talent don't have a lot of shooting so if they're also running up against an elite defense they're just not going to score enough to hang in a series with an elite team like Toronto and you've seen it even though the Magic won one of these two games like their offensive rating right now 96.4 points per 100 possession that's abysmal they just, I don't see how they're going to score enough to really make this a long competitive series. Maybe they steal one more and it turns into six, but I, I honestly wouldn't be shocked if the Raptors just run the table from here on out. Yeah. Uh, one thing I also noted, like when I wrote about the Raptors' defense on Vucevic, is there was one time, literally one time in that game two when the Magic managed to get Vucevic to score on the roll. And that was when they completely emptied out the weak side corner. And I think they got to keep looking to do that. Like if, if they are not providing the Raptors a place to tag from, um, then that's going to allow Vooch a little bit more free reign to actually score on the roll. And part of the reason that worked was on that possession, Kyle Lowry was switched onto Jonathan Isaac and Siakam was switched onto Augustine. And Isaac was standing in the dunker spot. So Lowry was basically the guy who was there to provide resistance at the rim. There are times when Lowry can make that read quick enough to get out and basically draw a charge there. Um, but on that possession, the, the pocket pass came fast enough that Vucevic was able to dunk it. So they got to get, I think, a little bit more creative in trying to find ways to get him involved. Because I think we can both agree, if if Vooch isn't involved in their offense, I mean, they're completely dead. They're toast. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there as that sw- series swings back to Orlando. Um, and that, I think, covers uh, the, the eight first-round series. Um, but before we sign off, let's just talk about a couple other goings-on around the league right now. And one of the big things is that David Griffin has agreed to take the front office job with the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, maybe yet another FU from the Pelicans to the Lakers after blowing up their season at the trade deadline. Now they snag a potential prime candidate for the Lakers front office position. Uh, they bring in Griffin who made some interesting comments about Anthony Davis, suggesting that Davis may not, in fact, be on his way out the door. Do you think this is just sort of spin and like this is what he has to say to the media because, you know, he wants to put a brave face on and say, you know, we're not pivoting into a full rebuild? Or do you think that he's ultimately going to have to acquiesce and and trade Davis? Look, I think, you know, 
there's a big part of him, obviously that would love to keep Anthony Davis in New Orleans. And I think he's going to have honest conversations with him. But I also think this is about at least trying to rebuild some of the value that was lost when the Pelicans just lost all leverage this season. I think this is what a good measured basketball executive does. He's coming in and he's not saying, well, we're going to start fielding offers for Anthony Davis. He's like, no, you know, we can work this out or there's still a chance he can stay. We're going to have these honest conversations. And even if it just makes teams that are, you know, thinking about going all in for AD, think twice of like, oh, maybe we do have to up the offer. Maybe it's not as guaranteed that he's going to hit the market. Like these little things matter. And I think this is the type of, you know, no disrespect to Dell Demps, but this is the kind of like measured approach that the Pelicans just didn't seem to have. And um, obviously Anthony Davis and his camp didn't exactly make it easy for them though. Right. I mean, I I wonder, Griffin obviously has a great track record. He's won a championship before. uh, And he has proven that when he has a super star talent, he can build a really nice team around them. Maybe he has enough cachet to sit Anthony Davis down and be like, look, give this a chance. You know, here's my vision. Here's how I can see this team actually developing into a legitimate contender. Give me a chance to make this work. Um, I mean, we'll see. It's possible that there is just kind of too much friction there right now that the bridge has been burned and the relationship can't be repaired. But uh, I think Griffin is as good a candidate as any to to convince Anthony Davis to stick around. Um, to the point about the Lakers, there are reports that in the absence of Magic Johnson, they are now considering promoting Rob Palenka from within to basically become the president of basketball operations, which I think would be a pretty disastrous decision um, do you have any thoughts on on that situation? I think it would be a, it's a joke that Rob Polinka. I mean, the fact that Rob Polinka outlasted Magic Johnson and Luke Walton is hilarious in its own right. But the fact that they now the Lakers now seem content to just let Kobe's agent run things when everything we've heard and read is that he's got bad relationships with basically everyone around the league. It's clearly the Lakers have learned nothing. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we were talking about when when Magic Johnson stepped down and in a way kind of did them a favor that uh, the Lakers should pivot away from all the cronyism that's defined them for the last few years. And it doesn't seem like they are taking that out right now. Um, certainly if they promote Palinka from within, uh, it's only going to continue the bad decision-making that's gone on there. So uh, we will see what happens there, and we will see what happens to all these playoff series in the next week. When we talk to you again, the series will be four games old. Some of them might be over, but uh, we're going to sign out for now. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all next Thursday. 